please take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. All sin begins with believing a lie. I want you to let that sink into your minds as we begin this morning. All sin begins with believing a lie. From the very beginning of the Bible, sin enters the world through believing a lie. Adam and Eve believed the lie of the serpent over the truth of God. His entire temptation was framed framed around the issue of trusting his word over God's word. He asked them, did God really say not to eat of this tree? That Satan is the one telling the truth and God is the one lying. And nothing has changed. Sin still begins with us believing a lie, either about God's goodness, or about God's greatness, or about God's grace, or about God's glory. We will believe the lie that God is not good. He is not great. He's not really gracious. He's not really glorious or holy. All of those lies lead to sin and ultimately are ruined. Now today, we're going to look at the famous story of David and Bathsheba. This is one of the most famous and most notorious stories involving King David. The author pulls no punches as he describes the fall of a king, and that's the title of my sermon. This is rated R Bible. So parents, you need to know as we walk through this, we will discuss things that may raise questions And it's your job as parents to guide them and instruct them regarding what pleases God and what displeases Him. As we work through the text, I'm going to point out several lies that David believes as we work through it together. Now let me remind you from the outset, the Bible doesn't mince words about the virtues and the failings of human beings. It's one of the reasons I trust the Bible. It'll be honest about Abraham being a man of faith, and also a terrified liar. It will be honest about Jacob worshiping in Bethel and being a manipulating cheat. It will be honest about Moses being the meekest man on earth and also a guy who had some anger issues. And it will be honest about David being a man after God's own heart, a king in covenant with the Lord, and a man who sins horrifically, brutally, and intentionally. Now, there are four basic scenes in this chapter. You have David and Bathsheba, you have David and Uriah, David and Joab, and David and the Lord. So I'm going to look at each scene briefly as we work through it together. So if you're in 2 Samuel chapter 11, let's read verses 1 through 5 and see the first scene, David the adulterer. David the adulterer. Look at verses 1 through 5. It says there, in the spring of the year... The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. 
Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. There are several things to notice here. First, notice that the text points out two times in verse 1 that David is in the wrong place at the wrong time. David remains at Jerusalem while Joab and all of Israel are resuming their campaign against the Ammonites that began in our last chapter at Rabbah, about 43 miles northeast of Jerusalem. David should be among his men as the job of the king is to go out with his armies into battle. We don't know why David stayed behind, but he did. Second, notice how all of this started all so innocently. In verse 2, David simply gets up from his couch or from his bed and takes a stroll on his rooftop on the balcony of his palace that overlooks the city where he happens to see a beautiful woman bathing. Now, this can simply be happenstance. It's not the woman's fault that the king's palace towers over, the rest, over her house and the rest of the city. It's late in the evening, the text says, so she's not necessarily doing it in broad daylight. This is the most private place she has to bathe. Like the story last week with the Ammonites, who could have avoided their own disaster by simply receiving David's kindness and courtesy over the death of their king, David could have simply offered the same kindness and faithfulness, Hesed, here, that he had just shown to Mephibosheth, he had just shown to Hanun, he could have showed it to this woman bathing. He could have turned away, let it be. He could have found something else to do. It's all completely avoidable, but he doesn't. Third, David takes steps. Instead, he sends someone, we don't know who they are, and inquires about this beautiful woman that he sees on the roof. And he finds out several things. First, her name is Bathsheba. Her name means daughter of an oath. Now that's ironic because David is about to break many oaths in this text. She's also the daughter of Eliam. Now, this Eliam is the son of Ahithophel, David's royal counselor. So this is the granddaughter of one of the most influential people in all the kingdom. And this will become a big issue in the coming chapters of David's life that we will get to, Lord willing. But, most importantly, David finds out that this woman is Uriah the Hittite's wife. Uriah is one of David's most fiercely loyal, mighty men. Now, David could have simply found out here that this was a married woman and said, well, she's not available to be added to my list of wives, which again was one of David's big blind spots that we covered earlier. Whatever David may have thought at this point, God's word is absolutely crystal clear. Exodus 20, 17 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Exodus 20, 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. David knows plenty enough to stop, but he doesn't. The text outlines what happens in horribly stark, staccato verbs. Look at them. David saw. David sent. David took. David lay. 
There is no hint of conversation. There is no affection, no love, no mercy, no grace, no hesed. It's all action and lust. Those verbs mirror closely the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. They saw, they took, they ate. And their world came tumbling down just like what's about to happen to David. It is at this point the writer sticks the knife in and kills whatever excuse we may have for David. For all of David's defenders, for all of those who would make excuses for him, for all of those who would say, well, Bathsheba is enticing the king, or that she shouldn't have tempted him by bathing on the roof, or that she was a willing party, or any other nonsense, look at verse 4. Look at the end. The writer plainly says, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Bathsheba is doing what the law of Moses required in order to be ceremonially clean after her monthly cycle. You can go read about it in Leviticus. Bathsheba's obedience to the law is being directly contrasted to David's disregard for the law. It is now that Bathsheba gets some of her own verbs. She returned home. She conceived. She sent and told David. The writer doesn't even use her name. The writer, he, she's just the woman. I think he's pointing out that this is exactly how David had viewed her and treated her. She's just a nameless tool to satisfy David's lust. Now here's some of the lies that David believed in these first five verses. And you take note in case you've believed any of these yourself. First, David believed that faithfulness in the small things didn't matter. David thought he was safe from danger away from the battle at Rabbah. It's just not true. David faced much more danger in Jerusalem than where he was supposed to be in Rabbah. The walls of Jerusalem provided David no safety from himself or his own heart. Listen to me. Moral dangers are just as deadly as physical dangers. Though we hardly believe that. Moral dangers are just as deadly as physical dangers. One of the basic truths in avoiding sins is simply to be where you're supposed to be. Be where you're supposed to be. Your greatest enemy doesn't lie out at the battle lines at Rabbah. Your greatest enemy lies here and here. Faithfulness in the small things doesn't matter. The second lie David believed was that God had not given me everything that I needed. God hasn't given me everything I need or want. At this moment, David believed that God had not been as good or as gracious as he should have been to David. David had to have more. Now, for a man who had many wives already, another lie he believed was that one more sexual exploit would satisfy his sinful desires. And that's the problem. You cannot satisfy lust or greed. You cannot satisfy pride or jealousy or bitterness or anger or any other selfish desire. Listen, you can drink it to the dregs and your lustful heart would only be more lustful, not less. Third, right along this, David believed this lie, which is so common in our culture. It's just sex. 
it's just sex. Listen, it's never just sex. It's impossible for it to be just sex. That's not how God made us. God designed sex for the joy and delight of one woman and one man inside a covenant marriage for a lifetime. God intended it to be, hear me, a selfless, self-giving act in the safe and secure confines of a covenant. Any misuse of this gift can only lead to ruin. It does not bring God's blessing. What David is doing here is selfishness, sin, and a rejection of God's gift and purposes. And if you don't believe that truth, right now if your mind is swinging going, Hi, Jacob, I don't believe that. If you don't believe that truth, then you, just like David, have believed this lie. God's commandments do not apply to me. Think about that. God's commandments don't apply to me. I'm above God's law. That's what David believed as king. He had the sovereign right to take and do as he pleases. Just like Adam and Eve and just like you and me when we exchange the truth of God for a lie. God doesn't make the laws, I do. And brothers and sisters, that is dangerous. To shake your fist at God and say, you are not God, I am God. Those are the lies David believed as the adulterer. Notice second, David the deceiver. Look at verses 6 through 13. It says, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths or tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out and to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Now that David knows his adultery can be found out, he concocts a plan to hide and cover his sin. He sends word for Uriah from the front lines and brings him home. Maybe you're thinking here, David will admit his wrongdoing and repent. Maybe David will do the honorable thing. No. Instead, David brings Uriah home under the deception and pretense of being concerned about the war. David makes some gestures and small talk, sends Uriah home to wash his feet. That's innuendo. He even sends David home with a gift of probably food and drink to enjoy a little R&R with Bathsheba. And just to make sure the plan goes off without complication, David sends others to follow him out. But instead of going home, Uriah sleeps with the palace servants. 
And when David finds out that Uriah doesn't go home, he has to know why. I mean, Uriah has an answer. Notice Uriah's answer. As long as the ark of God and the armies of Israel are out in an Ammonite field, how can I go home? How can I sleep with my wife and then go back and see my men? Uriah the Hittite is the most honorable Israelite man in this chapter. Not to be outwitted, David decides to double down on his deception. He decides to get Uriah drunk and send him home. But even a drunk Uriah is more honorable than King David. He honorably denies the command of the king to go home and instead goes back to sleep amongst the servants. Notice the text says twice, of his Lord. David is his Lord. He wants to do what is right. Now here's the lie that David has believed here. I can cover my sin and manipulate and scheme my way out of it. I can cover my sin and manipulate and scheme my way out of it. And all of you believe that too. I have as well. The problem is that sin only creates more sin. And in the end, it will be death. David and us, we, we would do well to remember Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And lest we forget, we better remember Numbers 32, 23, which makes this promise. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure that your sin will find you out. That is the promise of the Bible. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure that your sin will find you out. Listen, you may fool others with your scheming. You may fool me. You may fool others. You may fool yourself. But God will not be fooled. David the deceiver. Notice third, David the murderer. David the murderer. Look at verses 14 and following. It says, in the morning, after, day, after he finds out Uriah slept on his couch again with the palace servants, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king, king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go near to the city gate to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is also dead. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. Then the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So David said to the messenger, 
Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. Overthrow it and encourage him. It's a lot of time and ink spent right there. A lot of space and ink. Throughout this whole chapter, David has been in charge. He's been in charge from the very beginning. He will not be thwarted by a stubborn Hittite who refuses the king's seeming kindness of a respite from war. If Uriah prefers war to home, David will make sure that he has his fill of it. So he sends Uriah with his own death warrant in hand to deliver to Joab. The honorable Uriah doesn't suspect a thing. He doesn't peek at the letter. He just takes it to Joab, his commander. And David tells Joab exactly what to do with Uriah. Listen, Uriah must be struck down. Just like the Jebusites. Just like the Philistines. Just like the Ammonites. If David wants blood, Joab is happy to oblige. Just ask Abner. Wait, you can't. Joab's always been a practical man that can get the desired results even if through unsavory means. Now listen, I find it very interesting that Joab is given extensive space to report to the king what's happening on the front lines when David only cares about one thing. Bathsheba is given three words in this whole chapter. Uriah is given one sentence. Joab is allowed to pontificate. Why? I think the writer is skillfully insinuating here that David is a hypocrite. Joab subtly points out that David's entire philosophy of war is to not put his men in avoidable danger. David treats his soldiers with love and respect and care and seeks to protect them. He doesn't treat them like cannon fodder. They're God's people who should be shepherded with care. So Joab here sees right through David. But he still does what he's told. The deed is done. Four times it says that Uriah perish, perishes. Now as I was studying this text this week, I came across this story about Nazi Germany. The writer says this about David and Joab's arrangement and conspiracy to kill Uriah. Quote, Such arrangements do not usually surprise us. There was that day in October 1994 when Field Marshal Erwin Rommel was told, everything has been arranged in Berlin. Rommel had been implicated in a plot against Hitler. But because of his services in Africa, he was to be given the gentler, kinder, op kinder option of taking poison pills. Should he not consent, who knows what might happen to his family after he was eliminated. This way, they would at least be granted a pension. He only had to drive off with two generals, take the poison, and in 15 minutes, his wife would receive a call from a local hospital informing her that her husband had died of a cerebral embolism. And it would be a lie. But it had all been arranged. As had the state funeral been arranged. Hitler wired Rommel's wife asking her, quote, quote, accept my sincerest sympathy for the heavy loss you have suffered. 
Those are the words of Hitler to his wife. Hermann Gorig, head of the Luftwaffe, joined the act, assuring the widow, the widow that, quote, the fact that your husband has died a hero's death as the result of his wounds has deeply touched me. But everything had been arranged. We expect such oppression and sham from Nazism and in a hundred other regimes. But this is Israel. This is David, the king in covenant with Yahweh, the man after God's own heart. David takes the sword here after God's own people. Here there's no theoretical descendant of David committing iniquity. But the covenant king himself ruling with oppression and heartlessness. He says, quote, Here is the one who puts Mephibosheth at his table and Uriah in his grave. Now David, the man who would not kill Saul or lift his hand against the Lord's anointed, the man who sought to spare Ishbosheth and Abner and Mephibosheth, the same man who rebuked Joab, just a couple chapters earlier, for needless, unrighteous bloodshed, is now the man who has committed murder under the guise of war to cover his own sin. David believes the lie that life is not precious and that he can take the place of God in who decides who should live and die. And now look at, God, at David and God's judgment. Verses 26 and 27. It says, When the wife of Uriah... Heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She mourned over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. All of this was a success in David's eyes. He had taken what he wanted. Deceived and manipulated Uriah and Joab for his own purposes. And now David is in the clear. And David thinks no one will know except maybe Joab. But David's wrong. First, we're told that the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. And she mourned over her husband. Now, don't skip over the force of the repetition there. Her life will never be the same. She is a wife who has lost her husband, though she may not know the full account. Second, God knows. The writer summarily states that the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The last lie that David believed was that the Lord did not notice. That God did not see, or God did not know, or God did not care. But God's judgment over all of this is that it is evil. Lust, adultery, deception, murder, taking another's wife, taking another's life. All of that is evil. And now David is just like every other king of every other nation. David believed the lie that God does not know. As Psalm 10 says in verse 11, He says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hid his face, he will never see it. That is a lie. Do not believe it. God sees, God knows, God cares, and God will judge. Had David known back in verse 1 what the consequences of his sin would bring, he would have marched his butt to Rabbah, and he would have fought alongside Uriah and Joab. Hindsight is always 20-20, and that's the problem. 
We believe that we can predict the outcome or control and manipulate the consequences of our sin. We can never predict the full consequences or the compromises of our sin. That's a lie. Do not believe it. We tend to think at the beginning, I'll just look at one unsavory picture or video. We think at the beginning, I'll just send one provocative text message. We think at the beginning, I'll just visit that one bar. We think at the beginning, I'll just dabble in this one little drug. We just think in the, in the beginning, I'll just flirt with this one married person. We think just in the beginning, I'll just indulge this one time with this pleasure. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you reap, whatever you sow, that will you also reap. Listen, I've heard a hundred times from preachers far better than me. Sin always takes you further than you want to go. Sin always keeps you longer than you want to stay. And sin always costs you more than you want to pay. The entire chapter here should be a stark reminder. In light of all the Bible, this chapter should be a stark reminder that the kingdom of God isn't safe in the hands of David. As great a king as he has been, he's just like us. A fallen, sinful human being. Though there's good, there's also evil. God's kingdom can only be safe in the hands of David's descendant. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in whom there is no sin. And until Christ comes and removes all causes of sin, the kingdom will continue to be insecure in the hands of any man or woman or any group of men or women. Sin will continue to plague God's leaders and sow discord and sometimes even destruction among God's own people. And that reminder should drive us to Christ and cause us to long for His return. Because until Jesus comes back, the world will continue to spin around the sun and evil will still be a part of every fabric of our lives. And that is why we should rejoice at the grace of God. We are just like David in that we are rebel sinners. And we're just like David, if we are in Jesus, that we are safe and secure in his hands by way of a covenant, not but based on the blood of bulls and goats, but based on the blood of King Jesus, who shed it so that we could be forgiven. This morning, if you do not know the grace of Jesus, come to Jesus, because God sees your sin, God knows your sin, and God will judge it. And the only rescue comes through King Jesus. This morning, if you do know Christ, and you've been like David, and you've believed lies, and you are walking in rebellion, you need to repent. You need to confess your sin, not cover it, not manipulate it, not hide it. You need to repent. You need to bow the knee to Jesus in repentance. And He'll be gracious. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. May the Lord add a blessing to the preaching of his word. Would you pray with me, Father? I pray, God, that you would take your word and you would apply it to our hearts. And Lord, may we see our sin in light of your, in light of your word. 
and in light of your grace through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.